When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod. Use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Lino Larsen, sending to you live Wednesday, September f- uh, 21st, right after the um, Fed meeting concluding earlier this afternoon. Um, it was a uh, another strong message from the Federal Reserve, uh, another rate hike of 75 basis points, and kind of a crystal clear message to the market. Um, so... We're going to discuss today whether it's time to wave goodbye to the so-called Fed pivot story. Uh, and uh, I've invited Joseph Wang, uh, also known as the Fed guy, to discuss this question with me today. Joseph, it's good to see you. Hey, Andres. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Joseph, you uh, watched the uh, press conference with uh, Jay Powell uh, concluding just a, a few minutes ago. Um What's your impression of the message that he's uh, trying to send to us today? I agree completely with your assessment, Andreas. Paul was doing his very best to kill the pivot narrative. Now, I think it's helpful for the audience to understand why this is so important. So the Fed acts through interest rates. It wants to slow the economy. It wants to slow the economy down in order to get inflation down. So the way that the Fed works is that it adjusts the overnight interest rates, but that also gets priced into longer-term interest rates. Because if you're looking at the two-year or the five-year interest rates, how that is priced is in reference to what the market thinks is the path of Fed policy. So when the Fed hikes rates and you see the two-year or the five-year go higher, that's because the market expects the Fed to perhaps uh, keep hiking or at least maintain a certain level of interest rates. It's the market's expectation of the path of policy over the next few years. However, for most of the year, the market was thinking that even though the Fed was telling everyone that they were going to hike rates to get inflation down, the market was thinking that maybe Powell will panic and maybe start cutting rates next year. And so that was being priced into the markets. So even though the Fed was hiking rates, the market wasn't believing it. So interest rates were not going up that much through the belly and thus preventing financial conditions from tightening as much as the Fed would like it to. Now, that's a huge problem because if the financial market conditions don't tighten, then the Fed can't slow the economy down to get inflation back under control. So what the Fed, what Powell has been doing since Jackson Hole is, as you suggested, trying to kill 
the pivot narrative in the markets. Powell has unambiguously clear that they're going to stay higher for longer. And we saw that performance again convincingly and well performed today. First, we had Powell, of course, with the dot plots, moving the dot plots higher for next year, very clearly telegraphing that um, they are serious in keeping short-term interest rates higher. And the two-year reacted accordingly. We see the two-year above 4% now. And um, that's and of course, secondly, of course, was Powell pushing strongly against the narrative that he would uh, cut rates immediately when they would have a recession. And he does that by telling people very calmly and very clearly that you know he's willing to tolerate slower economic growth and higher unemployment. So that won't be a reason for the Fed to pivot. If we look at the market reaction uh, to this press conference, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, we have a negative reaction in equity space. But I also find it interesting that we have a um, a slight retracement in, for example, 10-year U.S. bond yields. Uh, so if we look at the 10-year yield, it's uh, trading just uh, north of 3.5%, but actually a tad lower uh, on the day. Um, so what do you make of the price action uh, after the uh, press conference and the meeting here? I think, as you mentioned, the price reaction in risky assets is completely as expected. So Powell is going to hike rates. It was a hawkish press conference. So obviously you would expect stocks to sell off, which they are pretty strongly, and I expect them to continue to. Now, the reaction in the 10-year is a bit more interesting. As you alluded to, over the past few weeks, the 10-year yield has been climbing. Uh, even when the stock market has been selling off. So it has not shown to be a safe haven. So if you were doing a balanced 60-40 portfolio, you were losing money on your bond side and your equity side. And it's been very uh, trouble, I think, very painful for them. But today, we seem to see a little bit more of that flight to, to quality back to the 10-year. Um, it's always hard to know what drives price action because you, you know it changes from day to day and there could be all sorts of reasons that I know for all I know, somebody pressed the wrong button and they started to buy a lot of 10 years. Um, but I think one narrative that I've heard is that part of the reason that the 10 years has been selling off is because inflation expectations have been rising. There are people in the market who think that maybe the Fed will not be able to get inflation under control. Maybe we have a repeat of the 70s and the 80s. And if that's the case, you really should not be holding the 10 year at three and a half. Now, with the Fed, that is very uh, resolute in coming, bringing down inflation, then if you are a longer-term investor in bonds, you can be a bit more calm that maybe inflation will come back down to 2%. And then in that context, it might make more sense to, to buy longer data fixed income. Uh, my own view, though, is, is, of course, and perhaps we'll discuss this later, is that longer-term rates are mostly supply and demand-driven. And for the foreseeable future, we'll have tremendous amounts of supply, not just from QT, but from fiscal spending. So uh, it's my view that bondholders will also be subject to significant headwinds going forward. And I think this question uh, on quantitative tightening is interesting in relation to the press conference, uh, conference that we just saw from Jay Powell, because it, it seems as if we have the most focus on the monetary policy rate and the path ahead for the Fed funds level, right? But beneath the surface, uh, the quantitative tightening process has already begun, right? Um, what do you make of this QT process and the spillovers to asset markets? Yeah, yeah, QT is a topic du jour. So for those of you who don't know, 
the Fed has been started to shrink its balance sheet uh, this month, actually, at, at full force. So they, the Fed usually does things uh, in a tapered fashion. So uh, for the earlier, for the let's say the three months leading to, to this month, the Fed was slowly easing into QT. And now they're doing QT at a full force of about $95 billion a month maximum. Just for reference, the last time the Fed did QT, the maximum that it ever went to was $55 billion a month. So the QT pace right now is, is much more aggressive than in the past. Um, at a high level, what QT does is it does two things. It increases the supply of treasuries the market has to digest. And the second thing is it takes liquidity out of the market. So QE, the Fed creates liquidity out of nowhere to buy treasury bonds, and QT reverses that. Now, this impacts markets, in my view, in a couple of ways. Uh, one, obviously, if you significantly increase the supply of uh, treasuries or any other financial asset, you're going to reduce the price. I think it's really good to keep in mind just how much of an increase this is. The Fed is expecting about $60 billion in treasuries a month. So that's $720 billion a year additional in treasury supply that the market has to digest. $720 billion, just, just for your reference. Um, so before COVID, we were issuing about $500 billion a, a, a year. Now we have QT, which is $720 billion a year. And we have um, the deficit that we still have to fund. It's about $800 billion, I believe. So you know, we're, we're looking at $1.5 trillion in supply this year, the next, and for the foreseeable future, it's going to be very elevated. So with all that supply coming on, you know, basic supply and demand, you'd expect treasury prices to decline, which is to say yields go higher. And that's been my base view since the beginning of the year. So I, I think that even if the Fed gets inflation under control, it's just not realistic to expect that you could just issue this forever and uh, not have the price have significant declines. Joseph, given this uh, truckload of supply uh, coming online in the U.S. Treasury market, both due to the balance sheet drawdown of the Federal Reserve, but also due to the uh, public deficit of the uh, uh, United States administration, uh, who's the marginal buyer of all of these bonds? We've seen how uh, international central banks have um, sort of uh, kept their... Uh, um, arms and, and, and legs quite some distance from, from, from the U.S. Treasury market in recent quarters. So who, who's buying all of these bonds? That is the question to ask. And the truth is, I don't think anyone knows. And just before I get into that, I, I'd also add that the enormous issuance that we see in the U.S., it's mirrored in many other countries as well. For example, you see in the U.K., well, uh, Prime Minister Trust seems to want to be able to cap everyone's electricity bill. Well, where's the money coming from? Oh, they're just going to print it. That's enormous amounts of issuance. And we look into Germany, they're probably going to do something similar. And if they really believe in having some degree of militarization, that's a lot of issuance too. So what we see is globally, there's going to be a surge in the supply of sovereign debt and increase the supply of anything. Then you, you have to have a you know, negative impact of the price, which is to say higher yields. Now, who's going to buy that is the question that is going to determine just how high yields go. Um, as we know, prices are set by the marginal buyer. Now, it's really, really hard to know who that is. And I'll, just by way of background, I'll give a little review of what it looks like in treasury markets the past few years. So pre-COVID, the marginal buyer of treasury securities were actually hedge funds. 
what they would do is they would buy treasuries and sell uh, treasury futures. You're harvesting a cash futures basis trade. And they did that to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. But that all unwound uh, in March 2020 when they basically all went broke. Um, since then, the marginal buyer has been obviously the Fed to the tune of, you know, trillions and also the commercial banks to the tune of a few hundred billion. And the Fed is out, as we know, and commercial banks are also out, as we can see in public data. So who's going to be buying all, all, all this issuance? And I, I'm not really sure who. I, I suspect what would happen is that uh, as yields get to a level that's, I think, the Fed finds unacceptable, it's probably going to be the Fed again. But between here and then, I think we might have to see a lot more distress for that to manifest. Joseph, if we look at um, some of the statistics published by uh, the primary dealers um, from the Federal Reserve Bank of, the New of New York, um, I've, for example, noticed that the amount of fails to deliver in uh, in the repo space um, has increased since uh, the beginning of the year in, in the treasury space. So what do you make of the liquidity in the treasury market and whether it's something that's on the radar of the Federal Reserve by now? I don't. So the treasury market liquidity is something of primary concern. And as you suggested, and many other publications have also noted, treasury market liquidity is very, very poor. And what that means is that, let's say, if someone suddenly wanted to sell a lot of treasuries, they might not be able to sell a large quantity without moving the price. And so we saw this happen in March 2020, where everyone in the world suddenly wanted to sell their treasuries to get some cash to make their redemptions. And the market couldn't handle that price yields jumped higher, which is to say prices declined. And then eventually it went to a point where no one could sell anything because there was no bid. We're at a similar situation here, not quite as bad. But again, this goes to what I've been trying to say is that if we have so much supply and we don't know who's going to be buying it and the market is, is liquidity is poor, you have the risk recipe of something that can be very, very disruptive, some potential of a crash, basically, in the treasury market. I think that sounds strange to many people. How could the treasury market crash? It's such a liquid market. Uh, but it has crashed before, if you remember, March 2020. And even before that, I think it was 2014, we had the treasury yield flash crash where it just dropped 150 basis points in, in a second. There's a lot of fragility there. Um, so when I was at the Fed, we saw a crash in the repo market. Now, for those of you guys who don't know, a repo market is a market where you borrow cash against treasuries. It is literally the most liquid, well, okay, most liquid treasury-like market in the world. So cash treasuries, maybe 600 billion a day. Repo, uh, over a trillion a day. So it's very, very liquid market. And yet in the repo market, we saw repo rates jump intraday from 2% to as high as 9%. That's tremendous volatility in a product that is not supposed to be very volatile. And if that's possible in the repo market, in my view, that greatly expands the possibilities of what we could see if there is a disruption in the treasury market. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the 
we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I, I wanted to play a uh, soundbite for you, Joseph. Um, it's uh, from a discussion between the former um, head of the uh, Kansas Fed, Thomas Honig, uh, and Harry Milandri um, on the Real Vision platform a bit earlier this week. Uh, and uh, Thomas has a few uh, interesting points in relation to liquidity and quantitative tightening. So uh, let's listen to it and get back to that discussion. Um, there is concern that the effects will be more um, bring a greater strain on the economy going through quantitative tightening than it did for quantitative easing, uh, because you're going to be taking liquidity out of the market. The market has had a decade, more than a decade, in which to adjust to a very large Fed balance sheet and quantitative easing and low interest rates that, that resulted from that. And, and you have a whole equilibrium around that. You have the, the distribution of assets and so forth. You've had, because of that, asset values rise, the stock market rise, housing costs rise. Uh, that, that's not even talking yet about price inflation. That's the asset inflation. So now you have QT, and you're going to take that liquidity out, and you're going to see interest rates rise, not just from the policy on the Fed funds rate, but probably along the yield curve. And that will, uh, I think, cause the stock market to values to, to at least not rise any longer, perhaps even fall. Uh, you already see interest rates on housing up close to 6%. Uh, that's going to slow the housing demand until uh, new adjustments and equilibriums are brought. And that, that adjustment then also implies more pressure on employment. Now, right now, unemployment rate is very low. But if you have a slowing of the economy of, of any significance, that relationship of unemployment or employment to the population could change very easily. So those are the risks that come with quantitative tightening that are real. And I think um, as we get into it, uh, we will see we will see more volatility. The entire interview with uh, Thomas Honig is uh, already available for Essential Plus and Pro subscribers at realvision.com. So go and watch it um, if you want more. Joseph, back to you. I mean, to me, this is sort of a crystal clear signal being sent by uh, Thomas Honig, the uh, former uh, head of the Kansas uh, Fed. Uh, I mean, he's saying that liquidity is being pulled out of the system to an extent never seen before and that we should expect repercussions for risk assets such as equities, but also the housing market. Do you concur with his views? Absolutely. And as I mentioned before, I think QT has two channels. Earlier, I discussed the channel where there's more issuance to digest, there's higher rates. And as Honig mentioned, higher mortgage rates is part of that as well. Now, the liquidity aspect is, is also really important. Um, so the way that I think about, well, one, overall, so when you put a lot of liquidity in the financial system, at the beginning, it seems like it's excess and no one really needs it. But if you have some extra money, you usually put it to use somewhere, either lending it to someone or someone borrowing it to do some kind of arbitrage. So what in the beginning is excess ultimately ends up getting used up. So the financial system seems to expand to take advantage of everything so that when you actually think is excess, it's not really excess anymore. That's just a kind of an overall view. But just 
purely from a mechanics point of view, uh, how I think of the mechanism through which QE works is that so QE in QE, if I have a treasury, I sell it to the Fed, and at the end of the day, I have a bank deposit. So QE increases the amount of bank deposits in the financial system. Now, bank deposits and treasuries are not perfect substitutes. Treasuries are risk-free and they give you some yield. But a bank deposit, you take bank credit risk and also there's no yield. And so when the Fed does QE, it forces a lot of people to take bank credit risk and have no yield. And what they do to get around that is that they go and let's say they buy um, longer dated treasuries, maybe corporate debt, maybe even equities. So that's part of the mechanism in which I think QE causes risk assets and financial assets in general to go higher in price. When you do QT, you suck out that liquidity and you reverse that whole cycle. So as Honig suggested, I also agree that risk assets will go lower. But on his comments on the economy, though, I think that actually this is exactly what the Fed wants to do. The Fed wants to slow the economy down. It wants to have a recession. That's how it would get inflation lower. So these tools, although blunt and although they do cause pain, are intentional. Joseph, one of the things that uh, is being debated over and over currently is the uh, amount of cash being parked uh, at the sidelines ahead of this uh, potential turbulence in um, in equity markets. But one technical um, aspect of this discussion is the so-called reverse repo facility at the Federal Reserve. Um, it's been um, almost overwhelming to watch the development uh, in the amount of US dollars parked at this facility over the course of the past 18 months or so. And we still have around two trillions uh, parked at this facility. Um, to me, as far as I understand, this facility was was implemented initially to sort of prevent money market rates from going into negative territory. Uh, but all of a sudden, um, this facility just um, gained and gained and gained in, in terms of its volume. What do you make of of this amount of excess dollars being parked at this reverse repo facility, is it something that could sort of act as a, a sugarcoating um, process in, in, in this whole QT debate? So that's a really good question. And I think that's exactly the line of thinking the Fed, the Fed takes when they look at the reverse repo facility. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the reverse repo facility, you can think of it as a special deposit account at the Fed where if you are a money market fund and you don't have anywhere else to invest, at the end of the day, you can invest your money with the Fed and the Fed will pay you a return that's in line with the federal funds rate. So I think originally, if you look at, if you hear what uh, the Fed officials were saying when they were discussing a very aggressive QT, they were like, yeah, you know what? We're just going to do 100 billion a, year, a month. It's not going to be a big deal because look at the RRP. There's 2.2 trillion parked into it. So aggressive QT will just suck money out of the RRP and everything will be painless. But that's not what happened at all. Um, the RRP size has been pretty stable. And in my view, it's going to continue to increase maybe significantly. So I think the key insight to this is that deposits in the RRP, they're held by the government money market funds. And government money market funds have a very, very narrow universe of investments they can invest in. So when the Fed is doing QT, or let's say there's 
declines in equity markets, you know, that doesn't really take money out of the RRP um, because the money market funds can invest in those longer dated treasuries or risk assets. What they can invest in is repo or treasury bills. And so far, there hasn't been a significant supply in treasury bills or significant demand for repo financing. So it's been sitting there. Now, one thing I think we should note, and this is relevant for the rest of the risk asset universe, is in a few months, well, the reverse repo facility is going to be offering over 4%. And maybe next year, it will be offering 4.5%. So if you are an individual investor, well, you can invest in the stock market by Apple or QQQ or whatever, or you can take your money, put it in a money market fund, who will then invest it in the reverse repo facility for, let's say, 4.5%. You could get 4.5% risk-free in a few months. I think that fundamentally changes your calculation when you think about how you approach investments. Now, would you still be willing to invest in you know, meme stocks if you can get 4.5% risk-free? You might, but I think some people would be more hesitant, and you can say that about the broader market as well. So I think good holding forward, this could be a mechanism where uh, cash is sucked out of the risk assets and gets parked at to, in safety, uh, perhaps in the RRP facility at the Fed. Now, just so you know, not just the RRP, but let's say treasury bills will also rise in, in yield too. That's a really interesting point, Joseph. Uh, I'll allow you to uh, act as the advisor to Janet Yellen now, because you sort of hint that uh, to mitigate um, or to allow this amount of dollars uh, parked at the reverse repo facility to sort of dissipate or trend down, you would need a truckload of U.S. Treasury bills being um, uh, delivered to the market. So what would you suggest that the U.S. Treasury did with its supply in the coming quarters? Yeah, I, I, think, I think you hit the, you, you're straight on point with that. The Treasury should issue more Treasury bills, and that will really boost liquidity uh, in, in the so it would be able to take liquidity out of the reverse repo facility and recycle it back into the broader let's say banking banking system financial system so forth um, there actually has been a plan floated to do something like this but for a slightly different purpose so as you noted earlier there's very poor liquidity in the treasury market and the treasury has suggested that one way that they could actually do something to fix this would be to do something called buybacks, or you can think of it as a twist, where they would issue more treasury bills, so shorter data treasuries that can easily be digested by the market, and use the proceeds from that issuance to buy uh, coupon treasuries or off-the-run treasuries that are, that are less liquid. So because then the treasury would be a steady buyer of these less liquid treasury securities, that will help boost market liquidity. And I, so this would be similar to QT, uh, for example, during uh, in QE. For example, during QE, the Fed is there in the treasury market acting as a steady bid. Um, if the Fed is buying, let's say, $100 billion a month, then you know, that's $100 billion a month in liquidity that boosts market liquidity. Now, part of what you see as a deterioration in treasury market liquidity is because the Fed is out of the market, there's less of a bid. If the treasury were to do buybacks, that would help uh, replace that bid a little. And if it's funded by issuing bills, that would also take money out of the RP. Uh, that's what they've hinted at in the past. I haven't heard a lot of follow through. Uh, in my experience, what usually has to happen is that something has to break and then the government can come in and save the day. So 
I wouldn't expect anything preemptive there. There's just no credit if you do that. No, absolutely fair, um, Joseph. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We have a couple of questions from the uh, audience, and uh, I think we have a really good one from Bob um, in relation to quantitative tightening. Um, he, as well as I, have noted that the Federal Reserve didn't deliver the amount of quantitative tightening that they had as the cap uh, in the first couple of months uh, of, of this tightening process. So how much tightening has actually been delivered, and why don't they reach their caps already? So um, actually, the Fed has has done QT exactly to their caps for the past few months. And I understand that many people look at the Fed's balance sheet and they don't see that. And that's for that's for basically two reasons. And it has to do with really uh, in the weeds mechanical reasons. Uh, the first is that they look at the treasury holdings of the Fed and they think, hey, they have not decreased as much as the cap. Um, they haven't, they have decreased, but here's the thing the Fed's treasury holdings have also increased. Why have they increased? It's because some of the Fed's treasuries are inflation protected, they're tips. So a tip security increases uh, each month in line with CPI inflation. That's how they protect you from inflation. So what's happening is that even though the Fed is doing QT for treasuries and they're letting some roll off, its huge volume of tips is also increasing with high CPI and that makes it appear like they're not shrinking the treasuries as much as they really are. Now, the second point has to do with mortgage-backed securities. It looks like the Fed is not um, letting mortgage-backed securities roll off at the same level. So that, that's a little bit more complicated, and it has to do with how mortgages settle. So when the Fed buys a mortgage, um, it doesn't actually take delivery of it until maybe within three months. So a lot of times what you see happening in the balance sheet is something that happened a few months ago. Um, so you have to keep that in mind. The Fed actually in their public data has a very uh, clear chart where they show how much mortgages they have committed to purchase but have not yet settled. That number has been declining steadily throughout, uh, throughout the past two months. So when you look at the Fed's holdings, you add the mortgages they currently hold plus the ones that they have purchased but have not yet settled, you will see also a very steady decline. And this will become more pronounced going forward because the level of QT is going to become much more aggressive. We have a question from uh, Chris on YouTube in uh, relation to both the terminal rate and also the neutral uh, policy rate of the Federal Reserve. Uh, we are quite clearly in restrictive policy on the policy rate now, at least compared to uh, studies made recently on the so-called neutral rate, so the uh, interest rate that is sort of neutral to economic activity. Um, what's your take on on this neutrality theme? Is is it possible to measure it? And do we know whether we are in restrictive territory already, Joseph? Yeah, no, I, I don't believe in 
neutral rate at all, actually. That seems so silly to me. So when, when you so economists like to talk about the neutral rate as the rate where interest rate, the real interest rate, where the economy is neither growing nor shrinking. So that's the rate where we're at neutral. But you know, when you when I think about the economy, I think that its growth and uh, depends on many, many factors. Uh, for example, um, what if a whole bunch of people uh, suddenly don't feel like working anymore? They feel like sitting at home, as we do. So things like culture. Um, or what if we tighten banking regulations significantly so that a whole bunch of companies who want to grow can't get funding, even no matter what the interest rates are? And that affects it as well. Or what if we have new technology, which fundamentally changes how efficient we are? So there's so many things that affect the real growth of an economy, and the price of money is just one out of many. Now, it's the only thing the Fed has some control over, so I understand that they emphasize it. But, you know, it's like a machine with 100 levers. You know, all of the levers are important. They all matter. We shouldn't just be focusing on this one thing. So... Uh, in, in, in my view, focus for the Fed to think that this is this neutral rate is so important, and if we get there, inflation will suddenly start coming down. I think it uh, sets the stage for a potential huge policy error um, if that way of thinking is is not actually um, in line with reality. Yeah, that's an absolutely fair point, uh, Joseph. I'll try to uh, uh, sort of uh, summarize my key takeaways from uh, from today's discussion on the Federal Reserve. One. We can basically wave goodbye to this pivot narrative after today's press conference. The Fed will be tighter for longer. And I deliberately say tighter for longer because it um, it both means higher interest rates, but also tighter liquidity, um, which is why tighter and not higher for longer is the way to phrase it. And ultimately, Joseph, this is not good news for uh, neither risk assets nor the, uh, nor the housing market. Any final thoughts for the uh, audience out there in relation to today's meeting? Now, you know, Jay Powell, Jay Powell is very unambiguous. I, guys, I would recommend you guys to uh, not be too aggressive in your risk taking. Uh, as, as you mentioned, they're going to be tighter for longer. And that has huge impacts for all the financial assets. Yeah, uh, I've made it my trademark to always conclude uh, the discussion in the daily briefing with a meme. And this is actually a meme that I saw for the first time uh, during the spring of this year uh, with um, Santa asking a, a girl for um, the Christmas wish. Uh, so she says that uh, she wants a dragon. Be realistic, says Santa. Um, then she asks for deposit rates to be higher than inflation. <laughs> and Santa asks, what color do you want your dragon in? But I actually think that there, there is a chance uh, that we will get um, the deposit rate above the inflation rate at some time early next year or so now, Joseph, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there is definitely that that chance. Uh, yeah. They do seem to be rising aggressively. I'd still rather have the dragon, though. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, Joseph, it was such a pleasure to the, discuss the takeaways from the Federal Reserve meeting with you. Thanks for joining. Bye, everyone. And uh, my colleague uh, Maggie Lake will be back tomorrow with uh, Tavik Costa guesting the show. So uh, see you tomorrow at the Real Vision Daily Briefing again. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.